This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. When I was young, maybe in third or fourth grade, I became fascinated by the idea of God. Specifically, the idea that God was watching me all the time. I thought about it a lot. I would think about it as I was walking to school. I would think about it as I was walking home. As a natural extension of that, I I would try to monitor my thoughts. And and I remember this, this sense of panic walking to and from school where I would be thinking about God and being fascinated by God. And then somewhere in my mind, the, the thought would pass by, what if there isn't one? What if God doesn't exist? And then I say, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't think that, I didn't think that, I didn't think that, because I didn't want that to be seen. I didn't want God to notice that particular thought. But then I couldn't stop thinking it. It was very frustrating. And later, when I came to Buddhism, I very quickly entered into a similar relationship with anger. Where I would get angry, and then I would think, no, 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 I can't be angry. I can't be angry, because now I'm Buddhist. So that's a thought that isn't permitted. And sometimes I would just try to push it out of my mind. Sometimes my solution was to say, well, I'm not angry. I'm fine. Even to myself. I certainly didn't want to admit to anyone else that I was angry. And it's funny, for as much ignorance as there is in the wider culture about Buddhism, this particular issue seems to have made its way into the larger discussion so that if, well, particularly if you're like me and you dress like this, if you get angry, someone who has no relationship to Buddhism at all will say, well, that doesn't seem very Buddhist. We have this feeling that these two things don't go together. Tonight I want to talk about this. We've we've arrived at the ninth precept of not indulging in anger. We're almost to the finish line. There's a feeling today, especially today, that if you're not angry, that means you're not paying attention. When we look at social injustice, we look at things that are going on in the world. I hear this message over and over again. If you're not angry, you don't see what's really happening. The subtext is, if you're not angry, you don't care. 
And on the surface, I think that's a powerful message. Because it's saying, wake up. Pay attention. Look at what's happening. But fundamentally, it rests on the idea that, that we have a binary relationship with anger, where there's anger on one side and there's apathy on the other. And these are your options. These are not your only options. It's natural that we get angry. I know there are people who interpret this precept to say that you should never actually experience anger, that you should not let anger arise. That feels horribly inhuman to me. There's nothing about this practice, as I understand this practice, that is about excluding certain states of mind. It's never saying you should feel this way. You should think this way. This frame of mind is good and this frame of mind is bad. Whatever is going to arise is going to arise. If you've ever sat facing the wall, you know that that's true. It isn't just what you want. And so anger, too, is going to come up. For some people more than others. The question is how we relate to it. And I don't mean that in the way that I think it's sometimes meant, where it's about how you feel. You know, I, I'm not saying I want you to relate to anger in a particular way so that you feel better. I care about you, but that's not, I don't care about that. <laughs> This tradition asks you to relate to anger in a particular way so that you can actually be of benefit. So that you can actually enact a life of vow in a skillful way. Anger, when you're in it, is not a place from which to act. That's confusing. Because when we feel angry, we want to act. Right? We feel empowered. We feel kind of bulletproof. I've mentioned before that there's, there's a real relationship between this precept and the fifth precept of not indulging in intoxicants. Both are about indulging. Both are about intoxicants. When you're angry, it's like being drunk. The center of the universe very clearly is you. And your sense of your own capacity can be inflated. So that you feel, you get into a, a, a mindset of first thought, best thought. You know, I'm angry and I'm feeling this, therefore I need to say this because that's authentic. I'm going to get it out.
I had a friend who used to, uh, you could say that she had a temper, but her uh, response to that or her way of dealing with that was the 24-hour rule. She would never respond to anything sooner than 24 hours if she got upset. She had that much restraint. But every once in a while she would break her rule because it would, she would just get pushed over the edge. You know, Something would be so bad and so immediate and she felt that if she let this go even one more minute, that would be a lie. And so she'd blast off some email, right? Full of the power of that. Always regretted it. Always. She never said what she could have said. She never expressed it the way she could have expressed it. Not in that moment. Not from that place. Experience that place. But have the maturity to pause I tell my son all the time, he gets very, his, his two intense emotions are anger and disappointment, which are just flip, you know, they're two sides of the same thing. They're both a narrative about injustice, right? You're on the wrong end of justice. He can get so mad. And we talk about it. We say, it's okay. It's completely okay that you're mad. That's fine. But what you say when you're angry, what you do when you're angry, is still your responsibility. In the same way that what you say when you're drunk and what you do when you're drunk is still your responsibility. You don't get to go back and say, well, I was drunk. If you're a mature human being, you don't get to go back and say, well, I was really mad. It's a reason, but it's not an excuse. Not if you're a grown-up. There's that small side of it, which has to do with causing harm, which has to do with not unleashing something that you later wish you could pull back in. But there's also the larger question of what what you're missing. When you're angry or when you're in love or when you're in the middle of almost any really intense emotion, it feels as if you're seeing the world with perfect clarity, right? Anger is great for this because we say, I didn't see it before, but now I see it, right? Now I see what's going on. But it's the nature of that experience that we think we're seeing something clearly because we're only seeing one thing. Option B to anger 
doesn't need to be apathy. From the perspective of this tradition, the other option, the other path, is clear seeing. And clear seeing from within this tradition is not this laser. It's not a microscope on one thing. Clear seeing is seeing the whole thing. Clear seeing means taking in the whole view. It means seeing the whole room, and it means seeing out the window all the way to the horizon, and it means seeing the sky. That's what you see when you have clear eyes. We say things when we're angry. Maybe someone wrongs you, and you'll go to a friend and you'll say, with a completely straight face, I do not understand how he can be so selfish. But if you're a human being, that's an absurd thing to say. You do know. You do know how a person can be that selfish. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean it doesn't have to be addressed. It doesn't mean that there's not a response. But if we see with clear eyes, we can't pretend that we don't get it. At least a little bit. If we see with clear eyes, we can't pretend that we don't recognize that the other person is human. One of the pleasures, one of the deep pleasures of being angry is imagining that there are good guys and there are bad guys. It's fantastic. But when you see the world through that lens, you're looking from the outside. You're looking through a story that no one else shares. Again, my, my son, he watches these cartoons. They're terrible. But, but they always have good guys and bad guys. And the, the bad guys, what makes them great is that they identify as bad guys. Right? They wake up and they say, I'm a bad guy. And I'm going to do bad things. Right? And bad guys do this. Right? And they would be disappointed in themselves if they did something good. Right? And that means that there are these guys who are good guys. And the good guys get to be good guys in relationship to the bad guys. And they're playing from the same script. The bad guys want the good guys to be the good guys because that gives them something to do. And the good guys want the bad guys to be bad guys because that makes them exist. It's great. But it's completely fictional. And when you get angry and you imagine that you're the good guy and that the other person is playing the bad guy, you're wrong. Because in the real world, bad guys don't think of themselves as bad guys. In the real world, bad guys think they're good guys. And when you start talking to them as if you're a good guy, you're reading from a script that they don't have and that they can't participate in. It's play acting and it's wrong.
And you could only ever imagine going there if you're a little bit drunk. But if you're seen with clear eyes, you at least recognize the fundamental humanity of the other person. And with that, the script changes. With that, because you see something of what's happening, you're able to address something of what is happening. You might be able to address a cause instead of just a symptom. You can be skillful. That's what's asked of us. Anytime that we start to feel very, very sure, anytime that we slip into thinking that a situation is absolutely clear. We're probably slipping away from reality. Our lens is probably doing this. And we experience this when we sit. Right? I talk about this all the time. In the beginning, we sit and our eyes are open and we see the whole room. And when we hold that whole room, there isn't much of a sense of I. There isn't much of a a pull toward a particular story or a particular fantasy or a particular whatever because I'm busy holding reality. I'm busy looking at things as they are. But as the balance shifts, and as I start to get engaged with my mind, as I start to look at something more closely, as I start to investigate or examine a fantasy or a memory or a hope or an emotion, I become more and more myopic. Not just mentally, but but visually. My eyes start to close a little bit. And this frame gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And when you notice that you're doing it, when you notice that you're trapped, that you're chasing something, you kind of sit up. And when you sit up, your eyes open a little bit. And when your eyes open, you see. And in that act of opening your eyes, your story drops away. Maybe not completely, but it loses some of its hold. If you've ever done that, then you know how it feels. If you've ever done that, you know how to come back. Maybe not to some perfect clarity. Maybe not to some equanimity. But you know how to release the hooks of whatever that is a little bit. You know how to remember what to look for. You know how to pause. You know how to reset.
It's not a weakness to do that. It doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean that you're not paying attention. It's in service of being in service. It's in service of offering yourself, not your story, but you. And we can do it right now. And I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.